Uh, well, hello, everybody. Uh, thank you very much for joining us for this uh, Kennan Institute event. My name is Matt Rojansky, and uh, I am a disembodied voice because I'm not able to connect uh, to the Zoom video, but uh, you'll hear my voice here uh, in the introduction, and then I'm going to hand the floor to my esteemed colleague, director of the Russia file, Maxim Shudalubov. Um, before we get started, I want to remind everybody, uh, you can keep up with our events and publications on our website, uh, and also with our podcast. Uh, Kenan X and our new podcast uh, run by Max and my colleague Isabella Taborowski, The Russia File. Uh, in the latest episode of The Russia File, uh, one of today's guests, Frana Fyotorka, uh, will be discussing with Max the emerging civil society in Belarus. So you'll, you'll get an even more detailed look at the topic that we'll discuss with a broader panel today. If you connect with that podcast on our website or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Uh, now, if you have any questions in the course of today's discussion, please be sure to send them by email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org or tweet them to at Kennan Institute or simply post them on our Facebook page. And please make sure to include your name and affiliation when sending questions. It will make it more likely that we'll put your question higher in the queue. Um, we have a wonderful lineup of speakers today who are going to talk to us about Belarus. We tend to do at least one or two conversations about Belarus each year. Of course, I wish we could do more, uh, especially now when so much seems to be developing and up in the air in that country. Um, but Belarus has had a particularly unusual response to the COVID pandemic. Um, there appear to be some real uh, changes, let's put it that way, in Belarusian civil society and its relationship to power. Uh, and of course, uh, Alexander Lukashenko's um, shall we call them unusual reactions uh, to the pandemic. All are worth considering, and I think the panel will do that for us. Um, one of the most striking images last month when uh, Moscow canceled its enormous 75th anniversary World War II Victory Day parade that was to have been on May 9th, uh, Minsk nonetheless held it and went forward. And so this, I think, was emblematic of the unusual position that Lukashenko has taken on this issue, all against the backdrop of what appears to be a kind of uh, growing gap between Lukashenko himself uh, and the Kremlin, despite uh, a 20 plus year history of the two of them, and uh, in, in many issues being very aligned. So that's another uh, question I think uh, the panel can consider. And then of course, uh, the rising wave of apparent protest uh, and apparent elite opposition uh, in particular uh, two uh, quite prominent presidential candidates uh, who uh, appear slated to potentially challenge Lukashenko uh, in the presidential election for later this summer. Uh, so a lot of issues on the table, uh, a lot of questions. Um, I think we'll be in very good hands with this panel. And what I will do to avoid the awkwardness of being a disembodied voice for the rest of the hour and 10 minutes or so that we have is I will introduce uh, Max Trudelubov now. I will hand the floor to him. Uh, and he will moderate the remainder of the panel, including uh, the Q&A, uh, though I will reserve the right to chime in um, if, if I can. Uh, so Max Trudelubov is a senior advisor at the Kennan Institute. He's editor-in-chief of our Russia file blog. Uh, he's an editor-at-large of Vedemosti, uh, the Russian newspaper, and is the host of our new Russia file podcast. Mr. Trudelubov was the editorial page editor of Vedemosti from 2003 to 2015 and has been a contributing opinion writer for the International New York Times since the fall of 2013. Max, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Um, and hello, everyone. Uh, I think it's a great, uh, we're in great company. And 
uh, I think it's uh, a great time to discuss Belarus. Uh, this year is bound to be uh, interesting and intriguing for Belarus and uh, all of its immediate uh, neighbors. Uh, I was myself quite in, uh, interested and intrigued by uh, looking at um, President Alexander Lukashenko's uh, response to uh, to the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic itself essentially proved itself to be some some sort of a uh, uh, some sort of a kind of a an event that shows. Uh, uh, that makes things visible that usually are not that obvious. And um, so uh, we will start, I think, with, uh, with uh, Katerina Smatina. Uh, Katerina is uh, the Rethink CEE Fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. She focuses on uh, Belarusian uh, foreign policy, regional security, and the impact of the great power relations on smaller actors. So, uh, Katerina, let's start with you. The floor is yours with your presentation. Um, thank you, uh, Max. Um, I will start with the observation that the COVID crisis underlined the existing uh, problems in Belarusian domestic politics and in Belarusian foreign policy. Uh, and I will start with uh, talking about the uh, civil society response and then we'll add a few remarks on Belarus uh, on relations with uh, like on, on global stage in that uh, um, environment. And so um, there is a uh, a uh, very nice way how the Belarusian uh, human rights um, activist and the Strizak put it that uh, the Belarusian civil society uh, took charge of the of dealing with COVID crisis instead of the government uh, in in the current circumstances, and it means that uh, there is a bunch of crowd uh, funding initiatives. Uh, there are groups of volunteers who deliver necessary supplies such as masks to uh, health workers and there are activists who help people who are homeless or otherwise in need in these times because uh, as if you might have heard and this was uh, in the news it, uh, like we Belarus appeared on the headlines all the way to US uh, uh, magazines when uh, with the statements of Belarusian president who said that there is no such thing as COVID it's not a big deal and we can just play hockey and relax uh, and then at the same time there is a bunch of uh, uh, people in need and very little response, uh, including some financial support to uh, people in need. Um, and I assume that my colleagues will touch probably more on the human rights uh, situation and stuff like that. And I would like, uh, like to talk about something I specialize on. I'm on the board of a women's rights organization, Organization of Working Women. And uh, uh, we advocate for uh, women's rights at the uh, job market. And uh, what we were trying to do during uh, last month, we were um, spreading a survey, and so far we have more than 1,000 of respondents uh, questioning women of what's going on with their uh, job rights and uh, whether the government, they have uh, had any um, support, if any. And so the figures so far are quite interesting. So about 30% uh, of women said that their uh, financial conditions and the uh, financial situation uh, significantly decreased during past few months, but only 1% uh, of uh, them have received uh, some support of, from the uh, state uh, that would help them to deal with this uh, financial situation. And then, um, 
at the same time, uh, in this uh, Belarusian organization of working women, we do have some legal uh, or try to provide some legal services to women in need. And uh, there is a bunch of cases where uh, women face with the contract where uh, with the situation where the employer tries to uh, reduce or deteriorate their working conditions and then try to offer the much worse remuneration uh, and replace the contract conditions. Uh, again, this is happening during the past few months. This is clearly related to the uh, pandemic crisis, but then employer won't say that okay, here is the we are doing this because of the uh, pandemic crisis, and then in Belarus is we essentially don't have uh, uh, functioning uh, labor unions who would uh, uh, effectively or other a clear mechanism that would um, actually clearly uh, protect those uh, uh, rights. So, um, and then uh, again, when we talk about women facing uh, violence, uh, domestic violence, when there is a uh, sort of international call, calls by the UN Secretary General to protect the, uh, women who are vulnerable in this situation all over the world, uh, we don't see those uh, issues much on top of the agenda of the Belarusian decision makers who are dealing very much with the overall vulnerability of Belarusian economy, we don't have quarantine pretty much because we don't have any um, safeguards for the, uh, to, to provide any social services or uh, to, to face the drawbacks related to COVID. Um, so these were uh, a few remarks to re regarding to uh, how the civil uh, society actors such as activists uh, sort of try to jump in and to uh, deal with uh, uh, with the crisis and uh, when we talk about the uh, Belarusian foreign policy uh, interests uh, in in this um, COVID environment uh, from my observation again it underlines uh, the existing scope of Belarusian vulnerability uh, and uh, the the way that we seek uh, money and uh, some support of for macroeconomic stability and we're negotiating with IMF, but the negotiations are not going uh, easy. And then again, much will depend uh, on uh, the outcome of the elections, uh, the presidential elections we're having. And uh, by this, I mean that if we have, again, the spiral of protests and uh, some cruel repressive measures, then we'll have a drawback in relations with the West, uh, which would uh, have an impact on, uh, on our uh, international stance. And then there is another interesting observation I've, uh, I'd like to point out is that uh, before the COVID, Belarus and, uh, was um, very much interested in enhancing ties with China. And this is very clearly visible. This pattern is clearly visible in the time of COVID, where I was looking through essentially Belarusian state media, where uh, they very uh, nicely uh, spread the uh, messages uh, by the uh, Chinese ambassador in Belarus and present very nice uh, sort of decorated and sweet messages by uh, saying how wonderful ties we have with uh, China and that the uh, China leads globally as a international leader dealing with uh, uh, this um, uh, crisis. Um, and so what I want to underline by that is that again that the COVID um, underlines the scope of uh, existing like the uh, status quo and the problems Belarus has in the short term domestically um, and uh, internationally. And I guess I'll stop here and we'll join with the Q&A. Uh, Franek Vichorka is with us. Yeah, uh, he's a Belarusian journalist and a media expert. Uh, 
uh, he has worked for, for quite a long time, has worked uh, for the Belarus service of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Uh, he's also vice president for Digital Communication Network. Uh, so, Franek, uh, you will probably speak about uh, how, uh, how Lukashenko's stance on the COVID pandemic will affect or is affecting uh, his presidential chances. It's, it's important that this year is also the year of presidential elections uh, uh, in Belarus. Uh, me being from Russia and Russian, uh, I, I'm always interested to learn more about elections in countries like ours, where they don't, <laughs> they're not usually the kinds of elections people in Western societies know. So, Franek, the, full, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, Max. Um, the real pleasure being here. Uh, so this year is not only a year of uh, presidential elections and the COVID pandemic, it's also a year of uh, when, when Russia is launching the nuclear plant in Belarus, when China is launching 5G Huawei network in Belarus. So this year is, is like life-changing for many Belarusians and it can be policy changing uh, for Belarus society as well. If I can, I'll share some slides uh, about what's going on now in Belarus. Yesterday I attended the um, uh, rallies. Uh, I, I was waiting, I was seeing, not, I didn't sign myself, but I was watching how people are staying in line to sign for alternative candidates. And I must say that everything uh, started in, um, perhaps in March and April, but COVID, it's not something that sparked this political situation we have right now, but it catalyzed this. It forced the situation because all this anger, all this disappointment with Lukashenko's regime, it was accelerated due to COVID and due to lack of proper response by Lukashenko. And now we have the, one of the highest rates of COVID um, uh, cases in the Central and Eastern Europe, and we still don't have official recognition in Belarus um, of, of COVID as the, as the major problem. We still have registered uh, uh, eight. 900 uh, COVID cases per day and uh, honestly uh, none of us believe these numbers are true. Press, press briefings organized by Ministry of Health stopped in the beginning of May so the only information we have these official numbers but our own investigations and investigations made by journalists show that the situation is much much worse than official propaganda is trying to show. And uh, around the COVID, we, we also observed the, the huge campaign uh, made by Lukashenko's propagandists and by, by Russian telegram channels. And there are many uh, funny uh, conspiracy theories and narratives around the COVID. So basically, all these ideas are about that, that COVID is the psychosis, as Lukashenko is, uh, is saying. And uh, that's, uh, it, is, it was invented by NATO, by the United States, by... Uh, by Ukraine, uh, who are trying to destroy our fragile stability. Uh, and uh, Pompeo, in February, when he visited Minsk, he basically brought uh, samples of COVID, and, uh, and uh, he's behind all the situation we have right now in, in Minsk and other, other cities. And Lukashenko himself, he, uh, he, try, he tries to support all this um, conspiracies by like, downplaying the situation and uh, making jokes, as um, uh, Katerina mentioned, about vodka, butter, tractor, fire smoke, 
as possible uh, treatments uh, for, for COVID. But I think majority of people took uh, preventive measures and uh, stayed home. Uh, I think young people who are watching the internet, following independent media, they uh, self-quarantined and um, that was the first sign of, uh, of emergent civil society, of the new quality of civil society. People self-organized and uh, when Lukashenko on one hand was saying that you have to go to church, you have to go to factories, to school and universities. On the other hand, private businesses, IT sector, high-tech uh, companies, they say they are workers guys, please stay home, that's very important for your health and for our organization. So now we have uh, 15 registered uh, presidential candidates. If we had this conversation um, a few months ago, I would say these elections will be the most boring um, in, in our history, but now I must say that this campaign is one of the most interesting ones. And uh, we have 15 uh, groups of candidates registered out of uh, 55. Uh, I'm sure that only a few of them will, will be registered as candidates. Now these guys have to collect 100,000 signatures in their support to be registered. And three uh, most popular figures among these 15 are first Viktor Babarika. Viktor Babarika is the former chief of Bill Gazprom Bank. It's, a, it's like a daughter company of, of Gazprom and Gazprom Bank. But we don't have um, information or proofs that he is like Gazprom candidate or backed by, by Kremlin or Russia so far, or we don't know the, the full picture, but all his statements are very pro-independence for Belarus. And uh, most of them are, um, are uh, excluding possibility of integration with Russia. The second one is uh, Valery Tsepkala. Uh, he was the first surprise for me personally. Uh, he is a founder of the high-tech park in Minsk. He was the member of Lukashenko team in 90s, and now he betrayed in 2017, and uh, he began his own game. And now he uh, called himself the, the best alternative. He promised the modernization of Belarus, a very pro-market uh, ideas. And the third one is Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, but not herself, but her husband. Her husband is YouTube blogger. We, we say that his YouTube project Joking, uh, when Lukashenko say he's project of Russia or opposition or CIA, we say that he's project of YouTube. He created his audience uh, during the last uh, several years by traveling um, and visiting different cities, towns, villages, talking to ordinary people. Now he has several hundred thousand followers uh, on YouTube and he has huge uh, groups uh, uh, on, on other networks, especially Telegram. And he is the person who unified uh, this protest electorate and who was the reason why many people came to the streets last weekend. So today, uh, candidates reported um, their results uh, in terms of collecting signatures. Of course, Lukashenko got a million. So I, I will not be surprised if he will say he has 10 or 15 million. Uh, actually, nobody saw uh, before um, Friday or Saturday, I guess, uh, his, his pickets, his rallies. Um, uh, so, so most of the signatures perhaps were, were uh, collected uh, forcibly from the employees of state factories and the companies. So speaking about the rallies, uh, this is very new for Belarus reality. We always had protests in, in Minsk, but now we have protests in basically each town, each city, each region of Belarus. And this is organized not by traditional opposition or political parties, but by uh, groups on Telegram and YouTube chats. People from the YouTube channel, followers of YouTube channel of Tikhanovsky just saying, 
look guys we are going to Baranovice tomorrow uh, and uh, let's let's um, leave uh, you can leave your signature in support of Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya and people are gathering so first uh, weekend gathered thousands of people everywhere and the next weekend yesterday uh, not, yeah yesterday actually government took uh, preventive measures they are trying to arrest preventively members of of Tikhanovsky crew including the Tikhanovsky um, uh, the, the husband of, of uh, Tikhanovskaya, uh, this YouTube blogger. So now we have um, uh, about 40 people jailed. Uh, they, today they were child and they got uh, from, from 10 to 50 days of arrest. Some of them were fined. And we also have 10 people, uh, including Tikhanovsky himself. They're facing criminal charges. They're accused of attacking the policeman in Grodna. So we uh, journalists made investigation and it shows there was no real attack, but but government is trying just to isolate them for the period of campaign. So and um, just summarizing, you know, the, the situation we have now, uh, I am, uh, as I said, I, I was surprised as many other analysts in Belarus of this of this development. I didn't uh, I couldn't imagine so many people joining the initiative groups of candidates. Um, most of the candidates do not pay uh, the collectors of signatures, which is also very new quality. Many people are really collecting signatures as volunteers, spending hours, days and weeks and risking their health and freedom just uh, because they, they believe, they, they believe uh, the changes might happen this August. There are new faces, new people, even if Lukashenko will crack down in August, Tsapkala and uh, and Tikhanovsk and Babarika will stay in politics, uh, um, most likely. We have huge volunteer movement, uh, Strijak, mentioned by Katarina earlier. Uh, he just uh, wrote me a few, few minutes ago that they collected $301,000. So basically, it's incredible. They collected this money to, to buy masks and equipment for hospitals. It's, 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 uh, it's amazing. It's awesome. We never had such... Um, self-organization in Belarus and before the same people were gathering money for paying fines um, of opposition activists and party leaders uh, we have new activities new organizations uh, mostly uh, online and new campaigns promoting Belarus identity civic mobilization you know the common response to COVID so as Katarina mentioned we when government doesn't do anything people uh, begin doing stuff and it's not only in Minsk, which is very important. So when the protest will take place in August, the most likely they will take place in different cities. And that will, that will create a very new situation for Lukashenko when he will need to send troops and policemen to, to different, places simultaneously, different places simultaneously. So as I always say, that's a window of opportunity. We have to consider this situation as such. Uh, we never had a um, situation similar to this one. It's possible to compare it to 2010 in terms of the crackdown, which is happening right now. But on the other hand, uh, Lukashenko also feels very, very weak. He has to balance between Russia and the West. He always has this uh, CISO policy and dilemma, you know, to take... Uh, he has mental support uh, from, from Moscow. And on the, on the other hand, he, he, he re he's receiving money and... Uh, and, um, uh, and some balancing and some trade-offs from, from the West. Uh, and uh, we have media. And it's my final, my, my, my final thought. 
so when when other countries they're facing now only like Russian propaganda, let's say, Belarus is facing both state propaganda and Russian propaganda. Sometimes they work together uh, to destroy a democratic movement or any any uh, uh, tries uh, any roots of civil society. But sometimes they are uh, attacking each other, which is happening right now, especially on Telegram. Telegram is, is the main battlefield in contrast to Russia. Telegram in Belarus is still controlled by independent groups. And we have um, Russia present in basically each uh, segment of information space. Uh, but we can talk it, uh, discuss it later in, in Q&A. Uh, thank you. I'll stop here. Oh. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly interesting to watch from Russia. Uh, we now uh, turn to Vitis. Uh, Vitis Yurkonis, are you there? Because I, ca I cannot, cannot see hi. you. Ah, Vitis, hi. So uh, Vitis Yurkonis, uh, joining us from Vilnius, is a project director at Freedom House and uh, he leads its Vilnius office. Uh, he is also a lecturer at the Institute of International Relations and Political Science uh, at the Vilnius University. Vitas uh, uh, has uh, studied uh, Belarus and uh, has spoken a lot on Belarus-related uh, issues and an Eastern par partnership. So uh, uh, we are going to look at uh, the this the side of the relationship, the Western part of the uh, of, of the Belarus uh, seesaw politics, its relationship with, its complicated relationship with the European Union. Uh, Vitus, the floor is yours. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. It's a very interesting conversation. And it's wonderful that uh, when the, um, my dear Belarusian colleagues were mentioning, you know, geopolitical aspects like elections uh, uh, and, uh, and I really want to focus way more on the civil society. I mean, it's uh, what we are witnessing now. It's uh, something like phenomenal uh, example of civil society in Belarus and its strength. Dozens of civic initiatives, even I've heard up to 100, very different. Uh, and uh, as uh, my colleagues mentioned, by COVID-19, uh, led by Andrei Strzak, and the company uh, stands out. Uh, it showed that despite very unfavorable conditions for civil society, it could do much more than the high-ranked officials. And uh, I think this is the key message for the West. Uh, we are so um, turned by uh, this geopolitical Russia versus Europe, uh, or sometimes, you know, like, if not Lukashenko, who then? It's all about elections, opposition, and, and everything matters. In fact, the, both are important topics, but I think that what uh, the Belarusian civil society is signaling is that it was underestimated for so many years and uh, and uh, that uh, this public debate and international debate usually was happening around the like uh, elections around 
protests around the, the geopolitical issues, but not what is happening inside. And uh, the beauty of this by COVID-19 initiative, uh, which was assisting the uh, medics, the doctors all over, all over Belarus, it's that it's really not a traditional civil society organization. It's not a gongo either. It's not run by the governmental, by, by the government. And it's interesting that this uh, initiative was basically emerged as, and it emerged, if I'm not mistaken, at Pranak Svichorka's birthday on the 26th of, uh, of March. Uh, so uh, it, it emerged as a civic response to the pandemic um, and uh, they took a responsibility, coordinated a lot of volunteers and it's a very diverse group of people, different background, political views. You know, we are usually hearing stories about this, that the position is not united, that they are quarreling among themselves and this initiative was exactly the opposite. There's a cause, they are united, they are avoiding this uh, toxic political battlefield uh, and uh, and uh, and it's gonna be even more toxic as Franak was mentioning because uh, presidential elections uh, uh, are approaching. So I do believe that many underestimated the, the strength of civil society and not only in Belarus, I mean in Lithuania as well, to be honest. And I admit that it's very hard to measure like uh, as a researcher at the Vilnius University and even as a Freedom House person, we are measuring the democracy index and I'm often like uh, waving a flag, you know, that's so important. We need to like pay more attention, be more optimistic about what's happening there despite all the restrictive environment. And uh, I think uh, the last years uh, in Belarus uh, are witnessing that, that we have a very tough operational environment uh, and yet uh, the civil society uh, is punching above its weight. So um, Someone might ask whether like, uh, there was any assistance and cooperation uh, from, with the government. It was very limited. I mean, the guys do admit that there was some cooperation with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs because they needed to transport some of the things from the neighboring countries. There was somewhat uh, cooperation with the Ministry of Health, but it was rather limited. The good thing, though, is that uh, they didn't mess around. Uh, not. Uh, yet at least, uh, and uh, that's a good thing. Uh, what it revealed, however, is that the field of uh, regulation of the uh, foreign funding, the crowdfunding uh, is uh, very restrictive and it's really very hard to crowdfund. Uh, Franak mentioned an incredible amount of money for Belarus that they managed to crowdfund, 300 up to $350,000, and I think it's, it, it's huge. And uh, now there's a question whether the, uh, some of the guys uh, in this initiative wouldn't be facing the taxation issues, and some might be facing something around $30,000 like for what they uh, fundraise, which is huge, and, uh, and it's a big open question. 
the uh, regulation of the volunteerism, you know, they had uh, 1,500 uh, volunteers uh, in their database, two, 300 constantly working, cooperating with them. So uh, again, incredible the like uh, fundraising issue it was not only business companies and the it people that were like uh, donating money but also the diaspora they were very surprised that for instance one of the surprising factors was like canada that some donations came from canada but it included also the us poland germany uh, uk czech republic so um no public recognition and appreciation publicly uh, by authorities, at least yet. Um, as I've said, uh, the main concern is, uh, and this is something to really observe, uh, I think that that might pose huge frustration if uh, people involved in this by COVID initiative, uh, if uh, they would be charged or like somehow like, uh, um, ask to pay taxes for that i think that that might cause an additional wave of frustration people would not understand that but we are yet to, to see if the authorities are not making any exceptions here but what i'm concerned the most that this phenomenal story that uh, we are witnessing around the covid 19 in Belarus is going to be overshadowed by elections. Uh, and we will be speaking about opposition candidates, repressions, electoral code, uh, recognition, non-recognition of the election. And I'm very, and I would like to believe that this incredible performance of the civil society would not be forgotten. Because uh, one way or another, um, I think the West should be focusing on civil society much more. It's perhaps uh, a long-term perspective, but uh, which will not bear like uh, immediate fruits uh, tomorrow. But I truly believe that's one of the few windows of opportunity, uh, if not the only one, and uh, for sustainable change in Belarus. And at least for me throughout the last 10 years by COVID-19 is something to be in the top three inspirational stories in Belarus. Thank you, Vitas, very much. Uh, I will remind our, uh, our audience that uh, please, if you have uh, any questions for our guests, uh, please submit them via email to canon at wilsoncenter.org or uh, via Twitter at Canon Institute. Or please find our, uh, our Facebook uh, page. So um, I will make some remarks myself and then we will move on to, uh, to Q&A. Uh, my name is Maxim Trotalubov, as uh, Matt uh, mentioned. Earlier, I'm a Russian journalist, and I'm, uh, I've been with the Kennedy Institute for quite a while. For quite a while, I'm running uh, Russian file, the Kennedy Institute blog. I am, uh, of course, looking at Belarus from my uh, Russian perspective. Uh, we are neighbors. Uh, Russia and Belarus been uh, neighbors for a long time, and we have a long, long relationship. Uh, what is 
fascinating to see is again uh, civil society uh, awakening this season and these these past years and and this is something I must tell you that is essentially unknown and uh, underreported in Russia. I would say it's not even reported in Russia. It's something that is actually very curious. Um, if we look, at, you know, something to understand about Russia. Uh, for Russia, for Russia's domestic, domestics, domestic politics, uh, Russia's immediate neighbors are very important. Uh, most of the media coverage, most of the narratives that the Kremlin is pushing through the state-run media, which are very powerful still to this day, mostly through television, they, uh, they focus on Russia's neighbors. And uh, a lot of that is, of course, has to do with Ukraine. Belarus traditionally uh, has been somewhat of a different story. It, uh, it would be presented as if Belarus, Minsk, would always be, you know, some sort of a, you know, almost in Russia's pocket. It's always there. Uh, it's 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 a convenient, convenient story, and it's a convenient case that it, of course, again, never mentioned openly. But uh, the Kremlin would always imply that if need be, Russia and Belarus will be reunited in some sort of. Uh, uh, more formal way that, it, that the two countries are now. And so this reawakening that's been happening for quite a while, it has been essentially completely missed. It, it's, it's non-existent on the Russian uh, media landscape. And uh, Belarus has, play, has, has been given a very different role in, Russia, in Russia's media during the past month, uh, the, the months of the COVID uh, pandemic. So the Kremlin decided to use, uh, to use uh, President Lukashenko as, um, as a sort of an anti-hero in a way, it's, uh, present him as a, uh, as a, as a figure, the, uh, Lukashenko's uh, so-called COVID dissident position is, denial of, uh, of the situation of the virus, uh, of the spread of the virus, has been presented on Russian TV as, uh, as, a, as, a, as a policy, as a, uh, as, um, uh, as, a, uh, as a means decision to deceive its citizens. It's, uh, so basically, uh, Russia tried, Moscow tried to present itself um, uh, as as a more westernized, more uh, responsible actor in world affairs than Minsk. And Minsk using as a, uh, as a shadow, uh, as something of an anti-hero. So this is uh, kind of a media story that's um, interesting, that's created uh, by the Kremlin. And, uh, and, and it basically completely overshadowed anything that uh, uh, actually has been happening in, in Belarus. Uh, so it's, it's very, I think, interesting to see and realize that uh, uh, Belarus is becoming uh, more and more uh, uh, independent in terms of its society's intentions. Uh, 
and all the talk of uh, integration between the two countries is visibly uh, becoming uh, less and less realistic. Uh, which is probably, I mean, probably the Kremlin does understand it. And uh, so uh, that's why they are creating this kind of a sort of a smoke screen that is hiding uh, the real processes that are happening in Belarus. I don't know. But uh, the, the fact is that Belarus is sort of, is some sort of a blind spot for Russia's, uh, for Russian society. The Russian society does not see it. And, um, uh, but it would be a very important lesson uh, for Russia. Uh, Russia. Russia's own civil society has been actually quite active during the COVID uh, pandemic. But uh, and, it, and of course, it's very difficult to compare these uh, these things. Uh, the, the countries are different. Belarus obviously is much smaller, although it's not a really small country. Uh, Russia is a huge country, uh, has many cities and uh, civil society is very active in Moscow and St. Petersburg and, and uh, Yekaterinburg, uh, uh, Krasnoyarsk, but normally it's confined to large cities in, in, in Russia. And uh, I would say that Russia's civil society did not see an, an something of, a, of this kind of an unexpected resurgence that we see in, in Belarus. So an exchange between the two uh, would have been actually invaluable and very interesting, I'm sure, uh, for the Russian public, which we will try and improve on uh, and write more about Belarus and Russia. Uh, I think this will come uh, with time. But um, so basically, I think what is, is very important to stress at this moment is that uh, the kind of politics uh, between Russia and Belarus that's, that existed for essentially for decades now, we can, we can say, uh, between the mid-90s and uh, a few years before, this kind of politics is, I think, is essentially in the past. The role that Belarus has been playing and uh, the way the Kremlin has been using Belarus is, is a kind of a fallback option. That's something that's always, always a possibility. Uh, again, for the Kremlin, that's an important thing um, to have a kind of a trump card, something in your, uh, up in your sleeve that you can suddenly get and, and make a, a very strong movement. Uh, before the Kremlin would make those decisions in foreign policy, uh, a sudden aggressive move, uh, a, su a sudden aggressive move, or some sort of a conflict that the Kremlin would start, and that would create a new situation, turn the table, and uh, turn the tables, and um, and change the uh, change the situation. So the Kremlin would essentially keep everyone on their toes and come, and come uh, sort of at the top of the game. This, this sort of expectation, this sort of uh, treatment of Belarus, I think is no longer possible looking at, uh, now looking at uh, how Belarus society is developing. So I think this is an important milestone. 
probably uh, this milestone has not been fully recognized, realized by Russian society uh, and the wider public. So I will stop here and uh, we'll try and get to, to uh, questions from the audience. I understand that Matt Rajansky, the director of the Cannes Institute, will uh, jump in now. Matt, are you there? Hi. Yes. Can, can you hear me, Max? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Thank you again for moderating, and I apologize for my poor connection, so I'll keep the question short, and then I'll let you conduct the rest of the event. Um, I noticed that uh, you talked quite a bit about Russia. Uh, I, of course, mentioned Russia in my introduction. Our other speakers uh, use Russia as a base of comparison. Um, but of course, uh, Belarus has another very significant former Soviet neighbor, Ukraine. And it seems like both the experience with COVID, where Ukraine in some, days, in some respects did very well, but in other respects, obviously, uh, has paid a huge economic price. Uh, and has had some real controversy around its public health response, uh, but then also on the issues of civil society and the balance between kind of, you know, uh, freedom and democracy on the one hand and uh, economic stability on the other hand, uh, Ukraine becomes a more and more relevant example for Belarus, because if anything that, uh, for example, Franek said about, uh, you know, growing uh, diversity maybe in the top ranks of Belarusian political leaders, if that becomes true, then it raises questions uh, for ordinary Belarusians, I would think, about, well, what are we going to look like then in the future? You know, is it going to be a kind of battle of uh, major oligarch politicians? You know, so my question is basically, what are Belarusians paying attention to in Ukraine right now? And what is the overall impression from Ukraine? Is it is it still the argument that Lukashenko always made that, uh, oh, look, Ukraine is a cautionary tale. We shouldn't go this direction. Um, I can begin here for Katerina. Sure, sure, please do, please do. Um, that's, that's a very tough question. Uh, I think Belarusians in general, they don't know what's going on in Ukraine. They, of course, they know Zelensky because they're following all the Ukrainian TV shows, quartals, and they watched the series Sluga um, Narodu, uh, but in general they knew about Maidan. Many Belarusians from the civil society actually were fighting on the Ukrainian side in Donbass and are still fighting. And Ukraine officially recognized the role of Belarusians in, in, in this war, in the Ukrainian-Russian war. So this exists but only for the part of the society. For the general population, Ukraine is equal the mass and Lukashenko state propaganda is always using Ukraine and Kyiv situation and all these changes in the government, the new laws, uh, the conflicts within elites and oligarchs' influence on, on politics. They use it as this um, uh, scare uh, scenario uh, that uh, Belarusians never wanted to, to experience. So Lukashenko was using Maidan five years ago and now he's using you know, all this political de development in Kyiv as the as the uh, um, worst case scenario. If you will not elect me again, you know, there will be another Ukraine in Belarus. But Ukraine creates a successful models for Belarus civil society. Started um, beginning in 2014 when Maidan happened. And this popularity of the national identity, Vishivanka, you know, some elements of, of national uh, culture on the clothing and the 
uh, on the popular brands advertising that everything came from Ukraine and it's still here. And very often I see that this new brand new companies, organizations, they very often copy their copying or their own, their are, they are copycats of Ukrainian initiatives. Even like uh, initiatives in journalism, initiatives in, in cultural um, sector, sometimes they are looking at what Ukrainians are doing right now and trying to do uh, similar, uh, similar stuff. And I must say uh, that Zelensky, as the figure, is very popular in Belarus, same as Lukashenko is popular in Ukraine. And it's not because they're following closely what's going on, but because of this image. You know, Ukrainians, they want the strong hand because they have two too soft uh, but funny leader and Belarusians are enough with the strong leader and they have they need something softer like and funny like um, like uh, Zelensky uh, there is no news because there is no media there is no TV channel uh, accessible uh, only one Ukrainian TV channel is accessible in Belarus networks it's UA, UA international it's UA public television but it's um, it's um, it's watched by a very very small group of people because um, it's accessible only on OTT and uh, smart TV platforms, um, not used by, by many Belarusians. Um, I have a quick comment. So when we were talking about uh, essentially what's going, uh, what's coming next, uh, who is, who, who, what's going to happen with Belarus if there is like a new leader in charge. Uh, but I would say that this uh, conversation, uh, and then we would compare this potential to Ukraine. I would say that this conversation is at the time way ahead of time, uh, because we had like one guy in power for 25, 26 years, and uh, based on his current intentions and statements he's not going to leave at least uh, at the next presidential term and then most likely we'll have his uh, another elegant uh, victory of 70 80 I don't know how many percent of support uh, uh, that would be announced by the electoral uh, commissions uh, and then um, uh, so yes, in the future, let's say maybe in the five years or when the uh, Belarusian leadership and the administration decide to make some sort of uh, president, like transit of power or somehow uh, otherwise uh, elegantly uh, provide an, um, an opportunity for changes at the presidential um, uh, candidacy, then it would make sense to talk about who comes next uh, and what kind of uh, um, candidates would get uh, popular support. But at the moment, as it was happening uh, for essentially two decades in Belarus, uh, we all sort of know and can expect who's going to get how much votes. And then uh, the it doesn't like essentially other alternative candidates go to the uh, uh, enter the presidential campaign for other purposes, for all other purposes other than actually intending to win the elections. They might step in to get some political, uh, to launch some political career, to build some profile, to otherwise convert this visibility into uh, some something else like let's say to uh, start a political to create a political party to enter the opposition or to pursue other goals but anyways like in the few years uh, we're not talking about the change uh, like the change of uh, leadership is um, unlikely uh, thank you Katerina uh, so there's a question uh, from the audience uh, it's by Zosia Lutkevich from uh, Poland uh, um, it's essentially about the current activism. Will it last beyond the pandemic? Is it sustainable? 
to any, any of you, Katerina, Franek, uh, Vitis. Do you think? Uh, it will last for sure. Uh, I'm, it's not that emer it emerged out of nowhere. I mean, behind the, uh, by COVID-19, they were already civic activists, you know, some like, like Anton Montalco, he was an active blogger, like dealing with urban problems. Uh, he had this initiative, uh, Matoka Pamagi or something, right? Uh, Andrei Strejak was also involved, you know, there were people around the, from uh, Imina by the uh, initiative, which was focusing on social, social issues. So it didn't emerge out of nowhere. The fundamental question is, uh, like, are we going to invest into it further and uh, bear the fruits? Because uh, I think that the public support, given their incredible effort, is going to, to be pretty big. Uh, the problem that civil society was usually, um, in, in Belarus, was usually viewed by, even by ordinary people, like something Gongo-related, you know, like uh, the organizations like Belarus uh, or BRSM, this like Belarus, it's basically government-related uh, entities, or it was very often uh, somehow like uh, merged, especially by the foreign analysts that civil society equals opposition or opposition equals uh, civil society. And I think this, is, this perception is totally wrong. I mean, yes, there were people who were wearing multiple hats, but what we are witnessing, we are witnessing something uh, like very independent from this like uh, political battlefield. And I think this is uh, something that the, the foreign donors uh, should be uh, focusing at uh, and uh, and also the crowdfunding. Uh, I think that's in the interest of the Belarus itself and even Belarusian authorities. I guess we've heard this narrative as if Lukashenko is the sole guarantor of, uh, and protector of Belarusian sovereignty, but in fact, the real resilience is Belarusian people and the more active they are, the better it is. I mean, the fact that you, like Max, you mentioned that we didn't see it coming. I think that uh, also the, there's a huge potential uh, of cross-border cooperation. In fact, uh, after the election crackdown in 2010, the, those were like Belarusian and Russian human rights defenders who started launching the Moscow mechanism. You know, the very same also outstanding civic initiative in uh, is something of uh, what we are uh, seeing in Russia with Taki Dila. There is like, I watched uh, one Russian blogger lately, Leonid Pashkovsky, and he did an episode about the Russian volunteers in Guatemala. You know. Yuri Dude recently made a huge uh, episode about the Silicon Valley, and I think more than half of the IT experts there were Belarusians. So, you know, the power out there is incredible. The question is if we 
are like uh, working together with them to make it real sustainable, uh, really sustainable and uh, help them out because currently the operational environment is very bad. I think that the, maybe it's already not that bad as, uh, as in Russia, but a few years ago, it was worse than in Russia. And I think that, uh, you know, unfortunately, the international community uh, is not raising issues, you know, of all this restrictive uh, legislation. And it not only could, but it should. Okay, thank you. Vitus. Uh, anyone, any, uh, any additional input? Uh, okay, uh, so there's an interesting question here uh, coming from George Kroll. Uh, we've been discussing uh, Belarusian civil society and it, it is exciting what's going on. But here's the question. Uh, what about all those employees of uh, the state-funded uh, factories, workers, uh, people who live on uh, state pension, etc., who who probably still form the majority of uh, the president's uh, power base. What um, what are they thinking? What is their position? Are they still the majority? So can you uh, uh, can you talk about this, please? Any of you, Franek, Katerina? Uh, okay, I so I'll start, yeah. okay, I'll start. I'll just mention that it will be great to actually know what people think about important uh, political matters and economic matters in the country. But I will just underline that we have severe restrictions for the uh, conductance uh, of the opinion polls in Belarus. And there were uh, some, some people who do conduct those polls, they do, do not live in Belarus and God knows how they, <laughs> they managed to, to uh, sneak in and then like, conduct a little bit of those um, polls which are not publicly um, uh, disclosed. And then we can only guess by, I don't know, talking to people, by looking at the uh, way people reach out to independent media, by the other uh, the work of the independent uh, journalists, or we can look at the cues in support of uh, to put in signature uh, in in uh, in the favor of um, uh, alternative candidates, and then I would say that's very interesting that people show up on the streets in the time of uh, COVID. Um, crisis uh, actually uh, putting their health at risk and they would stand in those lines and there are a bunch of uh, pictures and then uh, like in uh, in the media which prove uh, how long how many people actually showed up on the streets uh, uh, expressing their uh, discontent with um, uh, current uh, status quo and the lack of uh, government um, uh, support uh, um, I, okay can, can I can I just that sure, sure 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 yeah uh, I think, you know, this uh, state sector in Belarus, it's like a form of modern slavery because people are really afraid of uh, speaking out or going to protest uh, because they can be fired like the guy yesterday, the employee of the um, uh, ambulance. He was uh, fired because he was detained with Tsikhanovsky during the rally two weeks ago in Belarus. And he was fired. His contract was not, pro was not prolonged. This contract system is still existing in Belarus and it makes um, people afraid of losing the, the job and after this they will not find any other job uh, in state sector. So, but the state sector is shrinking. The salary and the level of life of the state uh, sector workers is going down 
and we have the situation where, when they don't have anything to lose, which also motivate them, make them more angry. And many, many people waiting in lights last week on the weekend or one week ago, they are actually teachers, they are uh, employees of state factories. Uh, they say that they don't have anything to lose, they want a better future for themselves and their um, children. And the anger they have right now, it is something that unified all these people waiting in line. I wouldn't say that's only specific group of people like students, young people, or like elderly, uh, staying to, to, to sign in support of alternative candidates, I think all kinds of people. But state sector, which was always the main electorate for Lukashenko, is not so uh, powerful anymore. What is powerful now? The private sector, IT people who are given a lot of money in support of cultural initiatives, social initiatives. Uh, the, the protest of 2018-19 were widely supported by IT people. You know, these developers who are working for Americans, but and they receive uh, American salaries, living in compar comparatively cheap Belarus, and they have money to give $1,000 here, $1,000 here, which is huge money for activists. And also social networks. Uh, we have this crazily important new space, Telegram. In Telegram, there are hundreds of channels, communities. One community, Matolka Pamagi for young urbanists. Another one is gathering help for doctors. The third one is watching human rights violations. You know, they all self-organize. And only because the technology enabled this, all these new people joined the movement. Before, they didn't have the, the way, you know, this corridor. They didn't see this door of entering the civil society movement. And now they have. It's just enough to uh, open, to create account on Facebook, Telegram, or YouTube. Okay, thanks, Franek. Um, so we'll, uh, we have another question here. Um, uh, it's from Vitautas uh, Bruveris. Uh, he is saying this, uh, the West is head over heels in the rush to aid Lukashenko, uh, saying that essentially uh, President Lukashenko is uh, the one defense uh, against uh, Russia's attempts to take uh, over the country. He is protecting uh, Belarus uh, independence. So is this the right strategy of the West? So I would, I would just add uh, to that, uh, how do you actually see you looking from Minsk? How do you see the West strategy? Is there even such a thing now? How do you see it? And, and, and is this true that this is uh, uh, the strategy? Um, okay, so I would say that we had a few years of sort of normalization of relations and uh, the efforts of the Belarusian MFA paid off with the uh, improvement of relations with the EU, with the rapprochement and uh, uh, um, some improvements with uh, Washington, with recent uh, visit of Pompeo and the uh, reestablishment of uh, uh, diplomatic uh, presence uh, between Minsk and Washington. Um, and I would say that the the West sort of looks quite pragmatically at the at Belarus. Uh, they do not want to put much, or like there is no not much rationale, pragmatic rationale to 
um, insist on uh, on some domestic changes and political changes or somehow invest in Belarus, other than supporting President Lukashenko, who is quite a predictable guy uh, and uh, probably is just better to deal with uh, Lukashenko with Putin, uh, maybe like the um, the red line would be not to uh, for for Belarusian leadership not to oppress the domestic population on a crazy scale to conduct peaceful elections, which look nicely uh, and uh, like on the um, on the outside, and that pretty much it. And then we would uh, deal uh, have business as usual uh, in the uh, like sort of normal. Um, normal way. So I would say like the, the pragmatic uh, tone is now uh, prevailing. Vitas, please. It's a very um, bright question. Belarusian people are the hostage uh, of Lukashenko in a way. There is a certain fatigue uh, with the other EAP countries. Thus, Europeans are kind of tempted by the stability and the alleged neutrality. This is what as if, you know, uh, Belarusian diplomats are promoting neutral country, though it's far from neutral. Some in Europe are even daydreaming of pulling as if Belarus uh, a bit further from Russia. But uh, let's be honest, uh, like some of Lithuanian politicians were talking about the Marshall Plan for Belarus, but we, with all the like uh, countries, be Germany, France, we are not able to bail out Belarus. I mean, it's not that Russia is has more money, but it has more unaccounted money. While we need to uh, account for every single penny invested into Belarus, that's not what the Kremlin does. And thus, I think that this approach is of bailing out Belarus is really naive. We need to invest uh, like and, uh, and encourage you know, trade and all of that. Currently, attention uh, to Belarus is at its peak, unprecedented. The temperature, as Franak said, in the society is very high, the dissatisfaction is high, and I think it would be a mistake um, to observe Belarus only from the perspective of elections and Lukashenko. Belarus is way bigger than Lukashenko, is much more diverse than Lukashenko, and the momentum to invest in Belarus and especially into the civil society is now. Okay, uh, that's great. Um, here's another question. Um, it's from Kenneth Yalovitz, former US ambassador to Belarus and Georgia. Uh, so, the question is this, uh, are there any signs of the police, security forces or intelligence agencies shifting their loyalties? Also, uh, can you speak uh, about, uh, um, sorry, uh, yeah, and, and the civil society? Uh, so will I think that repeats the question we already commented. Will will this wane? So basically, the question is about if if it's even possible to to somehow assess the loyalties and the moods uh, within the security community. What they're thinking is this uh, possible to uh, talk about this? Uh, anyone? Prana, Katerina? Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a very tough question. So. I, I must say, as Katarina mentioned, we don't have sociology. The only thing we rely is uh, social media and discussion and chatboards on one hand and our personal feelings from talking to 
people here in Minsk and other cities. So I must say the perfect, the two perfect things that Lukashenko has built for 26 years, on one hand, that's a lectural system, system of falsification, which works perfectly. They even don't need to falsificate because all the numbers are written like in the very end uh, by, by only one person, perhaps, in, in, uh, by Lydia Ermoshin of the chair of electoral committee. And the second hand, this, you know, the military and paramilitary vertical. These are, this group is a, a group of very loyal people fighters for Lukashenko, they have the, um, they, they admit, they ad, not admit, they're part of the Lukashenko's personal protection uh, forces. So basically we have his own security group. There is internal forces of military. There is the army. There is a huge um, group of policemen working in Belarus. And all of them are coordinated in order to prevent destabilization of the situation. But there are good signs of changes, and the signs are coming through social media. We see a lot of insights that are coming from KGB, from the police, from the government, even from top officials. They're sending the true information, they're criticizing the government. Sometimes, you know, they use Telegram and independent media in order to destroy their personal enemies. But for the civil society and for the, the public, that's an opportunity to know more about the situation inside. And many people admit they are enough with the system. They don't want Lukashenko in the future. I would say for these 26 years, uh, the new generation uh, has grown, the generation of independence. They don't affiliate themselves with Lukashenko, neither with Russia. They, they travel to Poland. They travel to Lithuania. They, they see that it can be better. Now they are 35 years old, but very soon they will take the leading and managerial position. And it's not only about the internal security forces, police, it's about all the administration, all the vertical. And these people, and publicly, they support. They support Andrei Strzak and by COVID initiative. They, they help uh, cultural initiatives. They help even Tsikhanovsky sometimes by giving him information and insights and real numbers. All the insights, Radio for Europe, working um, the Belarus service, all the insights are received thanks to people working in the system. They leaked insights about the real numbers of COVID uh, infected and COVID death in Belarus. And we rely on them. Uh, okay. Um, I will uh, try and uh, ask kind of a Russian question. Uh, uh, again, um, I mean, uh, just to remind, we are going to round up in about five minutes, but um, I will try, uh, you know, and um, ask you, uh, you know, as a Russian, uh, we've, uh, we've been, uh, uh, you know, there is a civil society in Russia, there, there is a certain opposition, and uh, what happened with years, with the years, we had this big surge back in almost 10 years now, uh, 2011, uh, 2012, uh, and then there was a, a series of disappointments. So basically, uh, Russian civil society's history is a series of disappointments, and uh, and uh, usually it ends with this realizations with, with that we don't really have a vision. We, I mean, people who constitute those various groups who, given a moment triggered by an event or something come together and uh, sometimes go 
outside uh, and uh, uh, and um, rally and uh, demonstrate, etc., etc., protest. Um, we don't really, they say themselves, really have a vision uh, what a Russia of the future is going to look like. Is there a vision? Is there something that you could tell us uh, what kind of Belarus is being discussed in those younger groups, in those emerging uh, civil society groups? Is there some, some kind of a consensus of a uh, you know, beautiful Belarus of the future? Okay, I can. I feel like I have because, to you know we have start, we have this start, we have this. I'm asking this because we have this meme in 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 Russia. You know, beautiful Russia of tomorrow, beautiful Russia of the future, which is by now kind of a people are joking. Essentially, people are joking. This is something that Alexei Navalny is using all the time. Uh -huh. uh, anyway, so so uh, I'm a, you know after Ukraine, uh, okay. we had one the most popular meme for five years. Which uh, which is which was shared at hundred thousands of time is very simple. It's the picture of the territory of Belarus and the text Belarus is not Russia, mm -hmm. and this uh, this uh, pictures was shared basically by all uh, groups of people in Belarus, even pro Lukashenko, even pro Belarusian. So there is a wide consensus that we deserve independent country, that Belarus is independent. It's a statehood which not failed, not because of Lukashenko, but despite Lukashenko rather, thanks to media, civil society, activists, cultural initiatives. But what we lack, we lack a consensus on national identity, on national identity markers. We still have two narratives fighting against each other. One narrative which took, um, uh, which takes roots from Grand Duchy of Lithuania, you know, uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, you know, we all belong to this, the biggest, um, uh, statehood from the Middle Ages, and this vision is shared, you know, and this, his, his, this story is shared by pro-independence, pro-democracy, pro-Western part of, of the population. But there is also post-Soviet, that we are still Soviet people, and we are like Russians, but with quality mark. And when we will find the consensus between these two narratives, it, it will be easier to understand, you know, what is our national idea, because we still lack it, and Lukashenko, he is not interested in unifying nation. He's interested, you know, in having this many, many groups, you know, that are trying to drag, you know, uh, to different directions. Thank you, Franek. Uh, I think I'm afraid we have to conclude now. There is clearly still uh, very much to discuss, uh, but uh, we will uh, close here for today. Uh, I'd like to thank you, our wonderful panel, for joining us this afternoon. And uh, I would like to thank our audience for tuning in, uh, for sending all those questions. We hope you will join us again for our next virtual Canon Institute event. Thank you all very much. And bye-bye. Goodbye.